is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and an executive coach, and today I welcome Dr. Michelle P. King to the show. Michelle will discuss how the new world of work requires a new way of working and her playbook to navigate this new career landscape. Dr. King, welcome. I'm so delighted to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's such a privilege to be here. My goodness, you are a globally recognized expert on inequality and organizational culture. And as we were chatting before the show, I've long been a fan of your work and have followed the incredible research that you've done. And it's really interesting because your new book is called How Work Works. And you write about how work has changed and how we really must adjust. So let's do a level set for this global audience. And if you would please give an overview about how work has changed from previous generations. Yes, it's, a, it's such a great question because I think, you know, we never stop and think about our workplaces and how they're changing and how we need to adapt. And I think for the audience, you know, probably four really important takeaways that are transforming your workplace today and will increasingly in the next sort of five to 10 years are really that, you know, you're going to see technology changing workplaces. So, so many people are experiencing this right now, and that's increasing the demand for technical skills. But at the same time, it's actually also increasing the demand for social and emotional skills. We're seeing diversification of talent. So you're going to work with people who don't share your background, who don't look like you. Same is true when it comes to customers, right? Rising rates of globalization, you're going to work for people who don't look like you. And then coupled with that, we're working in contexts that are quite informal. So hybrid world of work, it's a lot more complex to understand how your colleagues are feeling, to collaborate with them, to influence them, particularly in a virtual environment. And then all of that's happening at a time when workplaces are becoming a lot more informal. So we're seeing, you know, globally sort of reduction in hierarchical organizations. We're seeing mid-level managers as sort of that role in particular is slowly going to disappear out of workplaces. And you're going to be sort of in self-managing teams that are really hyper-social. So what does all of this mean? It means that the demand for advanced social and emotional skills is sort of the number one priority in organizations. So a ton of studies showing that that is sort of 75%, um, makes up about 75% of your career success, right? As opposed to sort of technical skills, which make up just 25%. So Michelle, let's pull that thread because you mentioned social skills and that they account for 75% of long-term career success, which is a different lens. So often we were thinking about degrees and certifications, but clearly the research says differently. So help this audience understand what are social skills and, and how do we continue to heighten and hone and polish them? So for me, you know, this isn't going to some sort of formal training um, and learning how to influence, right? You can't do you can't do sort of social emotional skills. You can't practice them in isolation. It's all about your workplace and how you best exercise that in your workplace. So for me, social emotional skills are really the ability to understand and interpret other people's feelings, needs, intentions, so that you can manage sort of your informal interactions with them. 
So I think a big kind of takeaway from my research was that workplaces are and will continue to be increasingly informal. So what does that mean? It means sort of what you do day to day, the tasks you undertake actually matter less than how you do them. Because most of us can't just go to work. In fact, about 82% of us have to actually work with others to achieve outcomes. So you can't just go to work, do your job and leave. You have to be able to collaborate, problem solve, innovate with people um, who increasingly are not going to look like you, right? And so that requires the ability to be able to understand what they need, understand their intentions and manage your informal interactions with them. So the how of work really enables what we achieve. So I always say, you know, how we work is much more important today than simply the tasks you undertake. You know, you write about this in the book, and I agree with you wholeheartedly that employees need to take responsibility for their own career development, their own skill development. Years ago, the company might have provided professional development, training, all of that um, extra uh, layer of, of professional enhancement, but that is, is going away. So the onus is now on the individual. So where do they start? Yeah, so look, I think what we first have to realize is that you know most of the learning, it's about 70% of all learning happens on the job. And it happens informally, right? Through you observing other people, through trial and error, through getting feedback. There's a whole bunch of different ways we can learn social and emotional skills. But I think the big message to everybody is this is something you have to take accountability for. And so your employability, your, your, your ability to be hired, your ability to progress in workplaces, largely depends on your ability to teach yourself these skills. And so in the book, I actually share four ways uh, four you know, systems that you can use to really enhance your ability to navigate social side of working life. So the first thing is really understanding how informal networks work, right? And we can go into that in more detail, but that is absolutely critical. So understanding how you actually manage your informal network, what is an informal network, and how do you make sure that you're investing in it? Because 70% of all jobs come through informal networks. The second piece is really understanding how you build self-awareness and other awareness. So really, you know, a lot of that informal information you're getting is kind of feedback on how you're showing up and also understanding how other people might perceive you. So we can go into how you manage that because that's where the magic happens around managing those informal interactions. And then the third bit is continually reflecting on what it is you need to develop and knowing how to develop yourself as part of your job, right? And then finally, the fourth bit is given that for most of us, we're going to have four to five different sort of career paths over our lifetime, we need to know, well, how do we manage our careers? How do we manage our employability? Because we're going to have different employers. You know, most people don't follow a linear career path. And as a result, you have to know how to manage your career. So I talk about how you do all of that and, and the importance of relationships and helping you advance and so knowing who can support you, knowing what you need from your workplace and knowing why you want a meaningful career. All of that really matters in terms of motivating you to develop some of these skills. So helpful. And and again, I love the book. It's laid out as a very practical, action-oriented playbook of sorts that gives specific guidelines about how to incorporate this wonderful information. I want to pull the thread on 
informal networks and, and what you also call small networks versus larger networks. So I'll, I'll pass the baton to you. I don't want to spoiler alert here, but there's a big difference in the efficacy of a small network versus a larger network. So please talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think with informal networks, I just want to explain kind of what that is. So, you know, when we think of networking, most of us cringe. Um, well, I think a fair portion of us cringe because we think of sort of going to these really formalized conferences where you hand out business cards. And actually what the data tells us, what a lot of research tells us is that's not where informal networking happens. So informal networks are really those connections you have where you're sort of in day-to-day kind of meeting people and formally sort of getting to know people, all of that matters. But what we found is people who are in the top 20% of being high performers in their workplace tend to actively manage those informal networks. So if you want to understand kind of, you know, how to manage your network, the first step is to think about, well, what is my network? So I want the audience to do this when you get a minute. I want you to sit down and write a list on a piece of paper of everybody that you go to for information on how to do your job, of everybody that you go to for advice at work. It can be about what's happening at work, like the how of work, or can be, you know, related to what you do. And then I want you to write down again on the list anybody who supports you. So informal networks are really made up of people who provide either information, advice or support. That's your informal network. The trick is in the old world of work, the way we navigated informal networks was really by being pretty exclusionary. So most people know this, right? So you have things like the all boys club where people really network with people who were similar to them. In the new world of work, we cannot afford to do that. So as workplaces become more diverse, you need to diversify your network. You need to take a good look at that list and think, you know, for every person on there, how similar or different are they to me? If you want to make sure you're investing in relationships that are really diverse. The second piece is you want to look at that list and think about, to your point on on the size of a network, you know, are these relationships mutually beneficial? So what I mean by that is, are there relationships where you can share your feelings, disagree, where people are open to new ideas? Because, you know, it's one thing to know if somebody's in your corner, and it's also another thing to know if somebody isn't. But not knowing is actually where all the anxiety lives. So 90% of anxiety in relationships happens when we're actually unsure if this person's backing us, if it's an ambiguous relationship. So you want to list, you know, write down in your list, is this a mutually beneficial relationship? And if it's ambiguous, then don't invest, right? Pull back because that relationship is not going to be a source of, you know, well-being for you. It's going to generate anxiety. And then you also want a mix of what we call strong versus sort of loose ties or weak ties. That's just a technical term. It means on your list, who are you close to? Who do you have frequent interactions with? And then, you know, who might you just catch up with occasionally for a coffee? You actually need both. So you can have a network of like 12 to 24 tends to be the average of an informal network that is made up of a mix of people you're close to and, and people who, you know, you tend to just catch up with occasionally. Loose connections actually give you information on potential job opportunities. Close connections tend to provide that sort of advice and support. So my my kind of message to everybody is if you don't have a big informal network, don't panic. You don't actually need that many. You really need one person who's going to provide you that sort of um, information, two people to provide advice, and one person to provide support. 
And then over time, you know, you can grow that to sort of a size of around 12 to 24 is average for an informal network. And again, for a lot of people who are really great at connecting, they might have a huge informal network if you even consider outside of the organization, which again is very, very beneficial because it helps you keep aware of potential job opportunities outside the market. But I think my first step to, for people to take is just to see your, net, your informal network, who's in it and how are they supporting me? Excellent advice. And I so appreciate the clarity there. You know, it's interesting. There's an old adage that I think stays true today. People hire who they know and who they trust. And when people are blindly sending applications and resumes out uh, electronically and all the job boards, fine. But the the likelihood of, of getting a hit there is slim in comparison to honoring the network and going deep with those relationships as you just described. It's absolutely correct. I mean, 80% of jobs are not advertised. That is a shocking statistic. And 70% of all hires come through the informal network. So that that's crazy to me. Like, we're just you, you won't even know there's a job opportunity. So you know, right now, like, I have a friend who's looking for a job, the first thing we did was sat down and mapped her informal network as a means of potentially looking for connections. And again, one thing I'd encourage people to think about is if your network is made up of people who are pretty similar to you, researchers find that's probably because you are doing the introducing. So right. you're much more likely to introduce yourself to people who are similar to you. So think about people who aren't similar to you and see if they can introduce you to others because that's kind of how you diversify your network. Mm, I love it. Michelle, we'll be right back after a quick break. I'd like to tell you about a special offer. If you want to bring your podcast to life or up your podcast game, you can get up to two months of free podcasting service with Libsyn using my special code CDHWORK. The Libsyn team will get your podcast on Apple and Spotify and give you access to critical stats and all the support you need to sound your best and grow your show. Use my special code, CDHWORK. Hiring the right speaker for your event is a tremendous responsibility. You need a speaker who will work within your budget and engage your audience. Whether you're looking to retain or grow top talent, create a healthy workplace culture, or prevent burnout in your organization, I can create customized content to help you recharge, reignite, or reinvent your career. Let's talk about how I can help you achieve your special event goals. Connect with me at carolinedowdhiggins.com. Okay, let's talk about self-awareness because that's part of the, um, the the paradigm that you set of self-awareness and then reflection, but you write that 95% of us are not self-aware. So where to begin there? Because I think that can be overwhelming for some to figure out what will stimulate their self-awareness. Yeah, such a great point. And I love this topic. I could talk about it forever. So self-awareness, just for the audience, again, I love definition, typical researcher, but self-awareness is really the gap between how we see ourselves and how other people see us and our ability to kind of close that gap. So what research finds is most people aren't self-aware, as you noted, but we don't know we're not self-aware. 
So a good example of this is, you know, a study found that 99% of people say they work with someone who isn't self-aware, but that they're not that one person, right? Why does this matter? Well, when it comes to lacking self-awareness, what you tend to find is people fall into one of two camps. You're either somebody who overestimates your performance, so you think you're amazing and you don't need any feedback, or you're somebody who kind of underestimates your performance. If you're an underestimator, that's okay. You need to just get more feedback, look at it more objectively, try and identify your strengths, and slowly over time, you can become self-aware. If you're an overestimator, it's a lot harder. So what research finds is if you have one overestimator on your team, it reduces your team's performance by 50%. And the reason is overestimators are not managing the impact their behavior has because they're not open to feedback. So they can be really difficult to work with. So one thing I would encourage everybody to do, given that most of us, based on the data, are pretty rubbish at self-awareness, is I would say... One practice we found to be highly effective is to not ask why questions. So when you get feedback or you get some sense that you need to improve, don't sit there and sort of overanalyze why you're getting the feedback because that leads us down rabbit holes of this person doesn't like me. And, you know, we try and that's where all the bias comes in to try and ignore the feedback. What we need to focus on are what we call what questions. So what can I do with this? what would, you know, a more successful outcome look like? So I always say, you know, when you're seeking out that feedback and you want to ask the what questions in terms of what you can do with it, make sure when you're seeking the feedback, you don't make it weird. So what I mean by that is don't try and formalize it. Don't get a form out and sit there and fill it. Don't do that. Just in the moment, after a meeting, after a presentation, after you've made a pitch, whatever it is, just say, you know, what could I have done differently? Ask the what question then and there to get feedback. What did you think worked well? You know, what would a, a more successful presentation look like? Try and get tangible feedback by asking those what questions and then reflect on that. Think about, you know, what you could do differently with that information. And I just want to share one more practice to build self-awareness. You know, research finds reflection is such an important activity. So one study found that if you sit down for 15 minutes a day, for a period of 10 days and you just journal for 15 minutes what worked well what didn't that's it you just you literally write that down you will increase your self-awareness by 25 percent in 10 days so i really wow. encourage everybody to ask those what questions and take time to reflect on them i i love those practices they're so easy to implement and michelle the one that that really resonated is the real-time feedback because sadly some organizations do periodic, maybe once a year performance evaluations. And at that point, some of that feedback is dusty, right? It's not even relevant because things move so quickly. So I love the what questions and the journaling. Fantastic, really actionable advice. So let's dive into trust. You write about trust a lot. You talk about how workplaces can be a giant trust exchange, but that people also want predictability. Tell us more. So, I mean, it's really interesting because a lot of researchers, and I'm not going to name them, some of them are pretty well known, um, will talk about trust and they talk about it sort of from an emotional perspective. So they'll talk about the need to be vulnerable, all of this. But my data didn't find that. So what my data found is we trust people who are predictable, as in you're much more likely to trust someone if you know how they're going to show up day to day. And so it's really important when we think about how we're showing up 
to try and create that predictability by being transparent in the decisions we make, by being clear about what we value and why, and being consistent in how we behave. So those three things really build trust. And for anyone who's thinking, well, trust sounds a bit woolly, why does it matter? Trust is absolutely critical in the informal. So going back to our example of offering someone a job or calling somebody up to let them know some information, right, that self-awareness, people aren't going to give you the feedback. They aren't going to call you up for the job opportunities. They aren't going to help you in your career if they don't trust you. So trust is literally the currency for building connection in workplaces. And we have a bit of a trust crisis because about one in three of us don't trust the people in our workplaces. And part of the reason is it's workplaces have become a lot less predictable, right? We've got things like the pandemic, we've got sort of hybrid working, all of that has made it a lot harder to understand what's required to understand, you know, how to show up. And I've got a survey that I'm going to release with my second book that is really showing that, you know, for, for most um, sort of millennials and Gen Z, 75% of their stress comes from their relationship with their manager. The trust is really broken down. So I think what we have to do is recognize that trust begets trust. The more we are consistent, the more we are transparent, the more we're clear about what we value, we are much more likely to generate feelings of trust in the other person. And as a result, they're much more likely to reciprocate. So it's not a terrible story, but it is really important to, to, to manage those three elements of trust. So knowing that we're in a trust crisis, and I appreciate your words, and the one in three uh, data point is really staggering. It doesn't surprise me, but it, but it still packs a punch. What about vulnerability in trust? I, hear, I heard you say transparency. Is vulnerability part of that trust? So I think the challenge with vulnerability is just because somebody is sharing an emotional difficulty or sharing some aspect of themselves, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to trust how they're going to behave. So I think we have to separate the two. Predictability is different from trust. Yes, you know, vulnerability can make you feel closer to a person. It can make you feel the person's being more authentic. It can lead to that, but it doesn't guarantee that you're going to trust them. When you think trust, think predictability. Can I predict how this person's going to show up? And in a lot of cases, you know, you, you'll see people actually weaponizing vulnerability to try and get the person to trust them. And for me, you know, that that's not great. We believe what we see and what we see are behaviors. And if people are showing up in a predictable way, we believe that they are much more trustworthy. And, you know, this comes back to that example of mutually beneficial relationships, Right. I trust people to be sure for me to have my best interests at heart when they're mutually beneficial. When they don't have my best interests at heart, I, I know they're not somebody that's trustworthy. It's that middle group where I'm unsure that creates a lot of stress. Dr. Michelle King, I have learned so much from you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I want to tell our global audience about your new book. It's called How Work Works, The Subtle Science of Getting Ahead Without Losing yourself. And of course, it's available on Amazon and all major book retailers. But would you be so kind, Michelle, to tell the audience about your podcast? I know you've got a free career journal on your website and how they can continue to follow you after the show. Thank you so much. Yes, you know, you can all um, visit my website, michellepking.com. 
I've tried to distill all of this lovely information into a free career e-journal with 52 exercises, one for every week of the year, and you get to actually apply it on trying to build and find a meaningful career. I've also got all my podcast episodes on there. They're on Apple too. It's The Fix is the name of the podcast. But, you know, for you, that career e-journal is a really great way to apply a lot of what the content that's in the book. So feel free to access that and download it once you get your copy of the book. Fantastic. Michelle, I wish you continued success and thank you for sharing your wisdom and expertise today. Thank you so much. And I want to give a special shout out to my extraordinary podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. We now have listeners in 16 countries, and Your Working Life is available on all major podcast platforms. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.